Have you ever felt like some fictional aspect of your life has begun following, haunting, or tormenting your actual life? I, I have sort of a weird answer to this question, and it's a bit of a long story. I'll, I'll do my best to try to summarize it uh, succinctly. But I've prank called uh, like a radio show slash podcast for, for, God, like five, six years. Basically, it boils down to I've got e-cigarettes for legs. I'll try to I'll, I'll tell like a roundabout story that'll culminate in either I've got e-cigarettes for legs. Someone in the movie I was watching had e-cigarettes for legs. I ran into a guy with e-cigarettes for legs. Some celebrity turned out to have e-cigarettes for legs, um, etc. Uh, and that's that's taken on kind of a life of its own in, in a lot of frustrating ways. Um, Vulture, I don't know if they still do this, but for a long time would do kind of podcast roundups uh, every week. And um, uh, the host of this podcast quote unquote, caught the e-cigarette e-cigar- e- for legs guy back in, I want to say like 2019. And Vulture wrote that up in their roundup. And that to me felt like I was being haunted by like a fictional creation. Like, uh, you know, people had taken up the mantle and were, you know, dragging my name through the muck, uh, so to speak. I-, I felt like, you know, like in Batman movies when like people are pretending to be Batman and they're wearing like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm not wearing hockey pants <laughs> or whatever he says. Like it felt like that, you know, mm-hmm. people were people were wearing e-cigarettes for legs and hockey pants. Uh, <laughs> and so this is does it still haunt you to this day or is the trauma um, the you know I, I called in fairly recently and they told me they could track my phone number now so i, I i'm now too afraid to call it <laughs> um yeah. yeah i mean it haunts me of course um not not in like a nightmare sense more in like a i could have monetized this i think it really haunts my dad i think he really was <laughs> expecting i would monetize the character <laughs> when i told him some guy was like selling merch he literally like shed a tear <laughs> well Frankie, can you uh, can you top that? <laughs> do you have any do you have any fictional characters who've become like wayward children? Or? I don't have anything that really compares to that. I do have a very bizarre story where, for the course on mad criminals that I teach, I had my students do a final project where I used to make them do a, a actual film, but for this year, I just had them do a script where they do their own mad criminals movie that they make it. Uh, they decided to make the serial killer in that movie be a college professor who teaches courses about mad criminals and uh, abducts his female students and locks them in a basement uh, under the pretense of helping them study. So once I saw that for their final project, I was a little troubled by teaching this class but that was two years ago that that happened and it still hasn't stopped me but it still does haunt me that this is what students think why students think i'm teaching the class Welcome once again to Split Picks. It's October. We are dutifully assembled in the Split Tooth compound. Last week, we spent two episodes looking at the films of Dario Argento to kick off our special series on the Italian horror greats. Bennett, you uh, took us on a tour of the caves of the Phantom of the Opera, and Steve Collins pulled us into some paintings to talk about the Stendhal Syndrome. Both were really fun episodes, but we are here 
because we are talking about the Italian godfather of gore, Mr. Lucio Fulci. We once again have Bennett Glace back. Are you ready for some more gore today, Bennett? Oh, yeah, you can say that again. Are you ready for some more gore today, Bennett? <laughs> <laughs> you can ask that again. Uh, yeah, I certainly am. <laughs> and also joining us, we have Dr. Frankie Venaria. Frankie, it's been a while. Welcome back. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me back. I love the opportunity to do this with you and with Bennett, especially. Uh, this seemed like a very Bennett kind of idea for a project, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to it. This is your first episode together. I'm, I'm excited to see what happens. Mm -hmm. So before we fully dive in, Frankie, can you give us a brief introduction to the film you chose today and a bit about what stands out to you about it? Sure. So the movie that I chose is The House by the Cemetery by Fulci, and uh, he made it in 1981. It's a strange movie. Uh, like a lot of other Fulci movies, there are parts of it that simply don't make sense, or they have a kind of logic that is, uh, there are scenes that have a kind of impenetrable logic. There are things that Fulci brings up. Uh, things that happen to characters or get referenced with characters that are never picked up again in the movie. And you have to figure out why was that told to us? Because uh, it doesn't ever seem significant enough uh, to be a red herring or anything. It's just told and then dropped. The, the film is uh, about a family who moves from uh, New York to a small town in Massachusetts. Uh, which is where I'm, I'm not from the town, but I'm from Massachusetts. So it's nice to see that. Uh, it's a kind of typical haunted house story, a possession story in a way with, as you would imagine, father, mother, and son uh, move into this house and all kind, kinds of hijinks ensue with all of the blood and gore and kind of fantastical violence that you would want from a Fulci movie. And quite a spooky son. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll we'll talk we'll talk about Bob, but I swear to God, the most terrifying thing in the movie is that horrible, horrible child. <laughs> All right, Ben, and what film are you going to have us look at today? Yeah, and I picked a uh, slightly later film from Fulci, nineteen uh, nineties, uh, A Cat in the Brain, which I think a lot of people regard as his final major film. This is a meta-textual work from Lucio Fulci. A lot of people have compared it to Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Um, I heard in a podcast that he apparently threatened uh, litigation against Wes Craven over New Nightmare. Um, and they are similar uh, in a lot of respects. I mean, it's a fundamentally similar premise, but it's not as if uh, a character from Fulci's film is, is, is coming back to, to haunt him. Um, Fulci plays himself, uh, or a version of himself, Dr. Fulci, a, a filmmaker who is having a tough time separating uh, fact from fiction is being haunted by uh, images of, of gore and goop and uh, grim murder. And uh, apparently these are all edited. Uh, some of them are edited from are edited in from uh, actual films of his. And some of these are from sort of uh, cut rate thrillers that he put his name on, you know, like Lucio Fulci presents type titles. Um, and his psychiatrist is secretly murdering people and trying to frame him for it. That's sort of the B plot. And uh, it's a different sort of uh, style of shooting in the murders than you're used to seeing in a giallo. Uh, it's kind of like a blend of what we're used to seeing in Italian, uh, Italian horror movies and what we're used to seeing in kind of 
regional American horror movies. We were talking about it off mic. A lot of people really don't seem to like this movie. It has kind of a piss poor reputation. Um, a lot of people think the central gimmick uh, doesn't work. You kind of get it uh, once you know the first hallucination happens. But I don't know. I thought this has a really wonderful tone. Uh, the sort of dreamlike logic that you come to expect from Fulci's films is used to really wonderful effect. And I don't know. I just like it when directors act. Yeah. We've covered a few of those on this show with you, so yeah, I think these are both really fun movies, and I think show his range is covered pretty well here. So just as a reminder, just like the last episodes, this is not a career-spanning look at Lucio Fulci. I don't know if combined we've seen even half of his films because he's made so many of them, um, but we're looking at these two as a snapshot of his career to see what these films tell us about his overall body of work. We'll get going. So Fulci's film career began as a screenwriter for comedies in the 1950s. He also began directing comedies before jumping into the world of Giallo, where he made his name as the Italian godfather of gore. Give me your general take on Fulci as a director, what makes him worth discussing, and a few of his films you'd point people to start with, maybe. Uh, so I think what makes Fulci uh, interesting is that, you know, I would sort of describe it as him having a almost a preservationist kind of aesthetic with with the way that he represents uh, horror and you know there there are certainly moments with particularly gory scenes as you would expect from the genre that feel uh, gratuitous that feel excessive but they feel almost that they almost have a kind of scientific or genuine interest in examining well what happens to a human being when they kind of make that transition from being alive to being dead or from looking or feeling human to not being that anymore and you know that takes on a lot of shapes and a lot of mutilations of different parts of the body and psyche and spirit in Fulci's movies but for for me what I think is really fascinating about him is that there is that kind of bent in his films to some degree towards cruelty, towards violence, towards kind of the spectacle of pain and suffering, but always with a kind of interest in what is the human dimension that kind of gets lost in, in seeing this kind of pain. So yeah, I think for me, that's kind of why his films stand out. I think, you know, Cat in the Brain is a great kind of companion for House by the Cemetery because he's playing himself. He's taking that kind of reflexive approach and kind of thinking about what that actually preserving himself in a way as a kind of artist making this type of aesthetic. What about a few standout films? When I really started prepping for this, I kind of watched a bunch of Fulci movies together. So they all, a lot of them just meld into the same thing. So I do want to say that I like Manhattan baby, but I kind of just want to say that I like it because I want to be able to have an edge against Rosemary's Baby, even though I also like Rosemary's Baby. Uh, I really do. Uh, I enjoy the Beyond. I enjoy, you know, it, the sort of the Gates of Hell trilogy in in general. But yeah, it's definitely House by the Cemetery is the one that I have the most kind of affection for. Bennett, how about you? So I want to apologize out of the gate for something I'm probably going to do, which is like unnecessarily always refer to Fulci kind of in relation to Argento. I feel like there is sort of a, there's a Keaton Chaplin sort of thing with the two of them. Um, they're very oftentimes, and it's, it's, it's pretty reductive, honestly, to think of them in terms of each other, I always pit them against one another. Nevertheless, I'm going to do that quite a lot. 
<laughs> Argento in, in his later films, including the two that we watched for um, our, our pair of Argento episodes, really puts you in this really truly bananas headspace, finds this uh, incomparable mix of tones. I think the Stendhal syndrome is a really great example of where that works. I like Dracula 3D, a movie that a lot of people don't like from him. And that's a movie that features uh, a bunch of characters getting attacked by a CGI praying mantis. Now, that's the sort of move that only a supremely confident director who is firmly entrenched in kind of the late style period of their career would, would deal in. Fulci gives you something like that in his first horror film, uh, A Lizard in a Woman's Skin, a film about my ex-wife. Sorry, I had to, <laughs> had to do it. I'm sorry. <laughs> you can cut that out. But that film features uh, our heroine being chased uh, in, in this sort of dreamscape by an enormous like bird puppet that we also see in like a crazy silhouette. Even the early Fulci films have what we we would think of as being kind of like late style signifiers from his uh, genre and and uh, his countrymen and his sort of genre uh, compatriots. Um, and I, I like that about him. I think the the things that are working and the things that aren't working are always really very very intimately connected in his films. I think of you know Argento as being a director of sequences. You know, the, the Hitchcock influence, you know, he really wears it on his sleeve. His command of the camera is very expert. You can really tell you're in the hands of a master. Whereas Fulci is, you know, a, a director of images. He really, really can craft some incredibly repulsive stuff. And um, again, like Argento, he's tuned into a lot of like the little pains. Um, you know, there's that eye gouging that's famous in Zombie that really lets you linger on what it would really be like to be stabbed through the eye. Um, and, you know, we've talked about where Argento has moments like that, the, the many of them having to deal with eyes, but Fulci is uniquely interested in, like, what it looks like when the body, like, falls apart. And, um, you know, I, I saw The Beyond back in 2017, apropos of nothing, and immediately knew it was a movie I was going to remember for the rest of my life. I, uh, I, I would put him in the same ballpark as somebody like Toby Hooper, who obviously has sort of an inconsistent career, was not always working with, like, the most resources, you know, certainly was underestimated by a lot of people, but I can't think of like an uncompelling movie from him. Of the 14 I've seen, I think Demonia is kind of boring, but even that has a scene where a woman is like covered in slugs. Um, so uh, you really can't go wrong. And he's also one of the directors where if you go on Tubi and look up Lucio Fulci, there's like 10 movies of his on Tubi. Uh, so, I mean, it's like, it's like walking into a video store and they've got a freaking Fulci section, folks. But... Uh, <laughs> What about, Ben, what are a few of your favorites, just to get those out in the ether? Yeah, yeah, other than A Cat in the Brain, um, City of the Living Dead is incredible. Um, you've maybe seen the gif of a woman throwing up all of her organs. Um, it's so great. That, so my description of it, a woman throwing up all of her organs, imagine that, like, times 10. It really is a woman throwing up all of her organs. Like, you're watching it for, like, three minutes. You're like, oh, well, there's a liver. Um, <laughs> the Beyond, of course, uh, Manhattan Baby, I'll echo that. Uh, New York Ripper is a movie that I don't think I would ever watch again. Uh, but quite, quite good, um, though it definitely, uh, yeah, uh, some, some violence that I'm not in a hurry to watch again. Uh, I watched The Devil's Honey, one of his sort of uh, not-quite-horror movies, uh, a psychological, psychosexual thriller. Uh, fellas, don't let Anthony Lane see this one. Holy moly, this movie is <laughs> horny. Oh, good Lord. Uh, and I'm not talking about the saxophone. Uh, and then uh, Don't Torture a Duckling is a great one that I think is a little more... Uh, 
psychological, a little more high-minded. There's a little bit of like, you know, there's there's critique of like the Catholic Church going on. You know, it, we'll obviously compare him a little bit to Wes Craven when we're talking about Cat in the Brain being like New Nightmare. I think Don't Torture a Duckling finds him in similar sort of uh, psychological headspace as like Wes Craven at his best, you know, exploring kind of generational trauma and this sort of toxic uh, town where this abuse is going on. Yeah, you really can't go wrong, folks. Uh, Lucio Fulci. All right. As always, we'll go chronologically, so that means the House by the Cemetery is up first. As we've mentioned, it is the third installment of the Gates of Hell trilogy, which follows the City of the Living Dead and the Beyond. I was surprised, going by the Italian release dates, all three of these movies came out within 368 days of each other. That's basically three movies in a year. That's, That's wild, especially for how good all three of those are. Frankie, maybe you want to take a little time to talk about what the trilogy just as a whole is about. Sure. So, yeah, the the kind of conceit of the trilogy is that in the first entry of it, in City of the Living Dead, you have, as you might imagine from a trilogy that has this thing, you have the gates of hell that are opened up by a priest. And essentially, you know, what follows in the film is kind of watching people turn into basically zombies throughout throughout the rest of the movie and as they're kind of moving towards the the open gate and kind of like the well i'll say the beyond because maybe even though that's kind of misleading but or i mean i guess it's relevant for the for the second for the second film but essentially it's opening up an entry point to some other kind of demonic you know netherworld space um and there's this kind of like religious component to it this kind of dark magic component to it but not especially pronounced it's kind of just thrown out there and just okay priest did this and you know here are the results from that the beyond is following up on essentially just the conceit of of the first movie not to trivialize the first one i ha- i think i like the beyond a little bit more but of course as bennett brought up the in city of the living dead the woman who loses you know all of the organs i mean it's a great moment it seems to go on forever and uh you never realize what is inside of a human being until it shows you um all of that uh I think the beyond I like a little bit more just because I, I think I have more of an affection for this kind of the haunted house genre as a concept. And this is slightly, you know, it's not quite the same. It's a haunted hotel, um, but it's basically a woman who inherits a defunct hotel that is kind of enchanted by the, this kind of dark magic. Um, and it also has spirits of the damned coming through it and the woman's responsibility is to uh, turn this into a profitable or you know thinks that she might turn this into a kind of profitable uh business for herself but it is an excellent kind of example of like a, a the southern gothic tradition and kind of working through working through that while it's cursed it has my my favorite probably of of the fulci that i've seen the spider sequences of course everybody loves that one i mean i i love you know i love the vomiting up our organs but as someone who's afraid of spiders uh it was really moving to see somebody's face torn off in ways that don't look or sound at all like what you would imagine i mean what you would imagine that to look or sound like um and that it it is also something that lasts for it seems like eight minutes 
Um, he really relishes the death scenes. It, really, it almost goes back in time and reconstructs his face just to. Yeah, there's there's another scene in the Beyond. I, I I cannot explain how we get here with these characters or who these characters are, but that girl sees her mom's like head get like acid dumped on it, and she's like, they keep cutting back to her yes. looking at her yeah. face like melting that, in the hospital. Is, what's so crazy about Fulci's movies is very rarely do characters like scream as they're getting like eaten alive or like their throats being bitten out or they're melting. It's always this weird, like placid acceptance of death. Same with like characters watching like characters getting melted. It's very, it's very unusual. And it adds to the like uncanny nature of everything. Yeah. Yeah. In his movies, it seems so much that you're just witnessing things happen and you're not able to like stop what's happening whether you are the victim of the violence or you're seeing it done to somebody else so the titles may be pretty self-evident but we have the house by the cemetery taking place in the gates of hell trilogy how does this one fit in (laughs) well this one kind of fits in in the loosest way possible because it doesn't really draw on the the mythos that much that we might such as it is i mean it's a it's not like a it's not the marvel movies so it's there's not like necessarily a easter eggs working their way through these movies but house by the cemetery there is a character who lives in this house by the cemetery hilarious name dr freudstein who is you know the the monster of of the movie uh who kills names uh, anyone who enters uh, the house freudstein was a doctor of some kind who got into some kind of legal experiments that resulted in him being transformed into a a monster who is lives in the basement so the the family is tortured by him and just by this bizarre kind of cosmology where the house is overall is possessed and there are other characters who have psychic connections to each other uh bob the demonic little Aryan child somehow having a connection to, to the events that happen. Um, part of what makes it interesting, this goes back to the idea of like bringing things up and never following through on them. One of the main characters, Norman, the kind of patriarchal figure, the reason that they come to the town is he is supposed to carry through on research that a colleague slash friend slash it seems like that there's some animosity between them though based on how he talks about this guy peterson or dr peterson mm-hmm. he comes to this town supposedly to complete research uh for his colleague uh that requires that he move to new whitby uh which is the name of the town and kind of live in this house for six months when he does this though there's at one point a character says to him oh well you came here like last year or however many years ago um to see peterson you were here with your daughter and he says well i've never been here before i and i have a son and you know i don't know what you're talking about there are kind of moments like that where you have characters referring to things that happened or kind of vague associations that the main characters don't seem to be totally keyed in on or don't have any conscious awareness of but it's always hinting that there's some kind of unconscious or kind of demonic or cosmic connections that characters become aware of too late fulci is not shy in from the first scene i mean it 
my question after that first scene is just how hard are our skulls really? I mean, he goes for it just right out of the gates. Jeez, yeah, yeah. Not not too many movies show you someone getting stabbed through the head. Uh, and Fulci yeah. goes there immediately here. Through um, the through the back of the head and through your mouth. Yeah. As with a lot of movies we've discussed on this podcast, I think you know uh, five minutes in if you're uh, if you're on this movie side or not. Yeah, I mean, once you see someone getting stabbed and where the knife, the edge of the knife, essentially becomes the person's tongue, and they can't yell out because their body has been fused with a weapon, you're like, okay, I'm on board for this. But then it doesn't really pick up that aesthetic for the rest of the movie. I was expecting it to have more like that's such an iconic kind of slasher image but the rest of the movie is not like that the rest of the movie is like the shining essentially no it's weird yeah it's like it's very briefly a slasher then it's like a ghost movie and then it's toward the very end a gore movie yeah. very very briefly uh yeah. once the you know the nature of the entity is revealed uh, mm-hmm. including some of his grosser images i mean the the use of maggots here is really unbelievable especially when you consider that like these have all got to be real maggots like it's not yeah. like they're using like animatronics <laughs> <sighs> so you've both kind of touched on this already but one thing i do love about fulci is how he, he just lets the fantastical exist and it's a lot like how argento uses the dream logic you know frankie you've mentioned there's the telepathic connection between the children the whole town thinks they've seen Norman before. And then there's also a great scene where a mannequin is just beheaded in a storefront window. I mean, how do you feel this film establishes itself early on? And what do you make of the world it presents to us? Yeah, I think the mannequin image is such a good one. And I love the way that that works because this happens very early on in the movie. The mannequin that we see, we see the young girl, May, who is kind of uh, a ghost, a spirit, some something. Well, I guess we should back up because she's first seen in a photo in the family's yeah. apartment in New York. So our introduction to May comes with Bob, the little boy, which it doesn't, just as a parenthetical, why would you ever name a little, why would his name? It is so weird that they call him Bob and not Bobby or Robbie. (laughs) So weird to call a little kid Bob. Just call him Robert. Bob is the name of Bob. Bob is like a guy who's like butt crack is sticking out. (laughs) It just doesn't make any sense. The kid looks the way that he does with that name. And at least for the version that I watched. He's horrifically dubbed. It's it's horrible. Oh, it's, it's this is the shrillest movie ever made. That scene with the bat, I was like, oh my god, I have to turn, oh, <laughs> I have to turn this down. Is incredible, um, but yeah, he, that all of those are reasons why he is the most kind of fascinating and terrifying figure to me. But Bob sees May in this photograph in the family's New York apartment at the beginning, and he seems to May says to him, or he as Bob tells his mother, you know, she's saying, don't, don't go, or, you know, don't come to the house essentially. And May is kind of this figure who does seem to want Bob to not go into the house, but does also want Bob to be a friend of some kind. So it's how much May knows about the kind of world that she's a part of. She seems to, she tells Bob things about it, but she doesn't seem necessarily like a sinister figure exactly. Um, 
So there's there's a sense that she is just a child and doesn't fully understand all of what's what's happening. So Bob and May seem to have this connection. Uh, May is kind of his guide. We see where we see the mannequin scene. This this was very bizarre to me. And but May looks at a store mannequin and. It's kind of a jarring image for her, and she reacts in a way where she sees it being decapitated. And the way that it's done, I love, because you hear it snap as you would hear, like, human bone snapping, and then the head just falls down, like a, essentially like a tower collapsing in on itself. So it is this weird combination of human sound on an inanimate object, but then it, it looks like a building falling down and then you just kind of see the head fall. May sees that happen and we later learn, as Fulci tells us with in his very direct and didactic way, the mannequin is the figure who will become the babysitter for Bob while the family is at this uh, cursed house. So I, I was just interested in her as how much does she and how much do other characters really know about themselves and i was also interested by this angle the film tries to set up a, a parallel between uh peterson and norman so i think the idea is that peterson had a mistress was married and had a mistress and that freudstein kills his mistress fulci seems to want to make it seem like there is some sexual tension or some kind of source of jealousy that Norman and Anne have something or that there's a hint of something and that Norman's wife, Lucy, is kind of upset by her intrusion in the family. I don't know if that was me reading too much into it, but it seems like it's another one of these instances in the film of characters kind of being trapped in relationships or in dynamics that they don't fully aren't fully worked out but that kind of makes it more interesting without everything clearly explained to you. I think all the relationships are kind of just supposed to be undefined, but you just know there's something below the surface that never really comes up. This film, like we've mentioned, kind of is bookended by some brutal moments and kills. What's the standout moment to you? I think it's that that stabbing through the head is the standout kill. Uh, later on, there's some some maggot stuff with uh what is that freudstein's sort of like reanimated corpse that is that is pretty grim to me but i i don't think it tops the stabbing in the head it's definitely you know i i like this one it, it doesn't get toward the top tier of fulci for me because it can't quite sustain that i think also the uh the presence of bob throughout probably diminishes it in my uh in my eyes i, I don't know i i'll give fulci the benefit of the doubt i like to say he he knew what he was doing in, in kind of uh a character that would normally be easy for us to feel affectionate towards that would normally be like an audience surrogate of a sort and making them just completely unappealing <laughs> so i do have to say we've brett and i found an interview with the actor who plays bob as a a has he addressed uh yeah the, he the was critical like, response to his performances he was just like i'd like to say that's not my voice it was dubbed and i apologize because i that's know the thing. it's, it's like, terrible I'm... it's weird that he's named bob and the dubbing is horrific it's bad his... <laughs> although his appearance is also strange uh it's a weird haircut <laughs> it's a weird haircut his teeth are too sharp uh, his eyes are too blue, his hair is too blonde, his lips are too red. 
Uh, he's, you know, a terrifying little... But all of those things, to me, it gets to how strange children are or the, the world this movie presents them. Because, yeah, like Bob throughout the movie oscillates between being very hyper aware of things happening around him and also just not really giving a shit about about anything it uh it certainly creates like an eerie all-encompassing sort of sense of horror that like their kid was possessed from the start (laughs) there's that sense you know like they never had a chance that there's been this uh cosmic design uh Mm -hmm. against them I don't know that he, he never did like an actual Lovecraft adaptation, but he's oftentimes referred to, or he's oftentimes discussed in terms uh, with reference to to Lovecraft and these films, in particular these Gates of Hell films, as being a uh, a capable kind of adaptation, not of Lovecraft's work, but of that that tone. And I think there is a lot of that here. There's this sense that the the menace is really kind of inescapable, and the fact that Anne is this just is possessed is someone who just like comes with the house, you know. Being, being being good evidence of you know how that manifests mm-hmm. so i think my favorite scene in this movie is frank you just teased it but bob goes into the cellar and mm-hmm. then he's locked in and he can't get out i thought it was amazing though because in one of the bonus features they were breaking down how they filmed that scene and when the axe goes through the door right by bob's head mm-hmm. that was real that was wow. an actual <laughs> axe with bob right there and yeah, they actually shot that. I thought that was incredible. Uh, but in that scene, Frankie, you, in your notes, you mentioned that Fulci loves putting characters in situations where they're trapped and they cannot escape the evil that's just lurking. That scene stands out to me because it's like, well, he's just kind of trapped and like they're trying to break it down. But how do you feel this whole feeling of being trapped affects the house by the cemetery? Yeah, I think it's there are ways in which like that scene that you're talking about craig is i mean it's a very thrilling moment and no i did not know the tidbit of that being you know, they wild. <laughs> head off with that yeah, um, you talk about things that couldn't be done today that's at the top of the list <laughs> of all of the the kills that we see there's a moment where the woman who gives them the house mrs Gittleson, is murdered she is killed in a striking way. Uh, it's It has a little bit more consistency with a, a slasher aesthetic, but she's basically trapped in the floorboard or on the, or she twists her ankle or something. She can't get up. And this is when Dr. Freudstein or his body, you know, walks over to her and he just kind of, you see looking at her that her, chest is just like her breasts are just like moving very much in front of frame and kind of just moving up and down and you see her kind of gasping for her life as he's just slowly poking her with like a rod or something and just piercing her skin in different places before actually finishing her off it was an image that i found compelling but also quite disturbing because you have this as you would expect with a lot of slasher films this sense of gore and sexualization going hand in hand, but not of a younger woman that you would normally see in this kind of genre, but of an older, you know, not an elderly woman, but an approaching middle-aged woman. She's just kind of indifferent to the family's issues that they bring up with her and their kind of desire to move to a different house. She has a kind of vested interest in being able to 
preserve the integrity of the house. But her murder in particular, not because I found her like an especially sympathetic character or anything, but her real sense of helplessness and her incidental role within the movie, like she doesn't do anything that's really that important. And yet she's kind of met with this dark, divine, cosmic punishment, I think kind of speaks to the the cruelty that exists in the world in Fulci's trilogy, certainly. And the kind of, no matter what you do, no matter what kind of functionary you are within this world, you still get punished for it. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure whatever your your role in the plot whatever like stock function you're playing uh if you're an old person if you're a kid if you're an animal you're not spared in Fulci's films uh scanning through the image for me actually that really sells the end of it and is one of the the grosser ones in his oeuvre is when the father stabs uh Freudstein's corpse and that like disgusting goop full of maggots comes out oh great image and the bat scene in the kitchen when it's just on his hand just like oh i'll just keep stabbing it oh yeah. no it won't die you wonder if like fulci paid for all of these effects like out of his own pocket these, these makeup effects because he feels like he wants to get his money worth out yeah. of every single like uh gore effect yeah. everything's got to get its you know its full moment in the sun well, i think for the bat they only had the one prop so they're like all right do it right or we have to like rebuild it so let's do it <laughs> i mean the bat i love the bat sequence just because it goes on for so long while yeah. to him even trying to like cut the bat off but also i mean craig you allude to this but He's stabbing it so hard and so much. He would be stabbing through his hand. Yeah. And then he just he pulls the bat comes off and you look at his hand and it's bloody, but there's just like two fang marks there. It's like, dude, you would have you would not have a hand anymore from what you yourself did to yeah. spoil yourself. But yeah, I Bennett, I love the I think that's another image that stands out to me, like the when Freudstein gets stabbed and it it happens in this really fascinating and compelling way where when Norman does it, it's not like a heroic moment necessarily. He just kind of walks directly towards the camera. No, it's almost like a like a childish, like, well, let's see what happens when I do this exactly. sort of a move. Yeah. Exactly. It felt like that that was the best take of it that they had and they couldn't like do a better one. So just, yeah, okay. This is not really what it's supposed to look like, but this is kind of what we have to settle for. And yeah, it has it's like it has no urgency to it. You barely see him do the action at all, but the payoff for the action is this grotesque and really, you know, difficult to watch image, as you're saying, of, of the maggots. It looks like maggots, but just kind of pouring out like him, but it also looks like just shit coming out. It literally looks like shit, yeah. 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 <laughs> I, it's, uh, uh, it's it's grotesque, and I, I don't know, the whole family dynamic is so like off kilter in, in, yeah. in the movie like it's fitting his weird like hesitance to like do this thing to protect his family because like as they're down there and he's supposed to be protecting his wife I, you get the sense throughout that both parents kind of feel the way about bob that we do yeah. especially in the beginning when she's like yelling at him about the picture yeah. um like they're they don't respond to his like intimations of haunting with like <laughs> healthy skepticism or like uh, fear they, they they respond at least she does in that sequence with like a kind of a hostility yeah. which makes sequences like that scene in the basement really uh i don't know interestingly charged it's yeah. it's like it's not the same as like the similar sequence in like signs where there's a lot of like, you you can really feel the affection uh yeah. but actually 
you know, it is really similar to the sequence in Signs because I think that's a movie where like Mel Gibson's character is really kind of like wrestling with how he feels about his family. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Like Fulci is like incapable of doing anything at all conventional. Like he's incapable of making like a normal, like, depicting a normal relationship, a normal family. <laughs> it's so strange though, because yeah, I think that's what's so fascinating about it. Because yeah, he is constitutionally incapable of doing this. Because you would imagine for this type of movie, it would begin with like perfect family and, you know, a different director would do it. Perfect family, everything kind of works. And, you know, it kind of breaks down once the events of the house uh, in the house, you know, kind of unfold. But the f Norman has barely a relationship with his wife. No, he has no like one-on-one -on -one scene with his son, even in this movie. You get the sense that he's annoyed by him or you know, just is not capable of dealing with him at all, which is, you know, an interesting lens to kind of, I mean, the movie kind of begs that you see it this way, but reading Freudstein as kind of like a projection or a cipher for Bob is like, well, yeah, it kind of makes sense that he would want to kill his his parents who don't have any kind of capacity of kind of love or, or kind of understanding or empathy for him. That also is just, it's just interesting to go back to the, why Bob has such a, a big role in the movie when he really can't do much of anything. And, you know, just the fact that what pours out of Freud's team when he's stabbed looks like shit. I think that's also, it gets to, if you asked Bob, Bob, what do you think human bodies are made of? He'd probably say, well, just like some mush and stuff. Or, uh -huh. you know, it just there's just shit inside of a inside of a body. I don't really I don't really get it. It kind of looks like what you would if you were a kid imagining what's the worst thing that you could see come out of somebody or you know, what's what you think is inside of a body. That's your answer. I do think the basement scene does a good job of capturing what it would actually be like to have your fears realized i mean i don't know if you've ever had the feeling like oh my god there's someone in the house right now and then you go upstairs it's like oh there's no one of course but like what if there actually was like mm -hmm. that's what i've always been scared of like what if there were like i think you just kind of freeze and that's what all the characters do mm -hmm. and that's where fulci really zooms in and lets the gore just kind of slowly drip you know yeah and, and it's cool to see somebody who, who who is usually working on such a cosmic otherworldly scale deal with something as relatable as like a staircase that you have to run up and that little hole that you have to squeeze your way through it's really him bringing it down to earth in a way that i don't think he often does you know having something so crazy and supernatural happening with something that we can all relate to you know like turning the basement lights off and, and like sprinting up the stairs mm -hmm. He really actually builds the geography of the house surprisingly well, I think, for a director who's not necessarily associated with coherence. Yeah. I think my last question for House by the Cemetery is the concluding quote. So we're, we're shown a quote by Henry James, and it says, No one will ever know whether children are monsters or monsters are children. What do you think that does for the end of the film? So it's interesting because... You know, one of the details that we haven't mentioned as much of um, about the film is that Freudstein, other than just like normal grunting and groans, like he does make a noise. And this is a pretty common Fulci trope of just like wailing and in House by the Cemetery, wailing children, it seems, or a crying child. And at one point when Freudstein gets his hand cut off, he seems to be crying about that. Yet the movie is not 
really that sympathetic to him as a character. So I don't know that the quote is necessarily saying that there is some kind of humanity contained within like these monstrous figures or such a monstrous figure. But I think it's kind of erring more on the side of, you know, a little bit what I was talking about before in terms of the the alien nature of children um, and kind of the fact that they're not really part, they're not socialized uh, in the way that normal human beings are. Uh, and there's a there's a way, as we were talking about with our conversation of Bob's parents, they just don't know anything about their son on on a very fundamental level and don't really have an interest in knowing anyway. And it's just kind of a, a final thought. There's a moment where Bob says to May, you know, parents just do what they want to do and, you know, kids don't get to have any any real say. In a, in a sense, the film is kind of offering up the idea, well, what if you put yourself in the mindset of how a child sees uh, or kind of interacts with these strange occurrences rather than from the perspective of the adult of the adult and maybe that explains somewhat the kind of incomprehensibility of the plot or kind of how characters are relating perhaps that speaks to a non-human adult and either take that as monstrous or childlike way of understanding violence and kind of the events that unfold can I ask a, a potentially stupid question? Is that quote real? Is that actually from a Henry James novel or short story, or did he just make it up? I is it like a think veneer it is, of uh, uh, it is real? I believe so, because I saw an interview with him where he said he was referencing Turn of the Screw. Uh, I'm not sure because it would from be Turn of the Screw super not, funny if but... it's just a if, if it's just a fake quote. It's definitely reminiscent of, of Turn of the Screw, at least uh, thematically. Yeah. I don't know. For me, it. Um, it, it adds more kind of fuel to the fire for the whole question of like whether or not Bob is internet the whole time and the, the, the nature of his sort of uh, possession. Um, we should talk a little bit about the ending when Bob is saved from the basement. He uh, is welcomed into the Freudstein family. He's like back in time um, and is there in the um, photo from their apartment too. Yep. Yeah. 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 Um, and I don't know. I, what do you make of that ending? It's uh, it's it's a little reminiscent of the the ending of the Beyond. You know, you're in you you kind of enter into this weird like ghostly realm at the end. But it's uh, as opposed to being kind of like a apocalyptic world, uh, he is being welcomed into another like family. So it's I don't know. It's like playing on this like elemental childhood fear. You know, being like separated from your family. But in a way, it's almost got this sort of bittersweet nostalgic sort of tone to it again uh fulci refusing to do anything the way another director might i mean it's interesting because i think you're right bennett that he does it has this kind of bittersweet component where he does get a family and i think his relationship with may would certainly be more like that's what he wants that's a kind of companion that he wants the older woman is that supposed to be mary freudstein, freudstein. i think so that yeah. was my take yeah that old woman has just a very haunting presence in the movie of constantly saying okay may it's time to do this it's time to do that and bob does lose his i think bob has a better relationship with his mother even if she's not exactly like on the level that he really needs her to be like of the two parents she's the one who cares more about him and it seems almost that he's moving, he's getting May, but he's almost getting a more indifferent mother or grandmother figure. So there is this kind of sense that even in this afterlife that I guess that he has, 
he's still not going to be totally happy with with what it is um even though he gets more of what he wants you kind of have to love the obvious symbolism of you know there's the gravestone in the kitchen that he's pulled through (laughs) it's like come on house by the cemetery you gotta love it also i gotta give a shout out to the realtor when she's leaving the house the first time she runs over a gravestone just goes damn tombstone (laughs) i love that Well, we should probably get moving on this. So any final thoughts on House by the Cemetery before we get to a cat in the brain? Check it out, folks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, even though it's the third in the trilogy, I think you could pretty easily watch it first and not lose anything. I mean, it, in some ways, it's a better entry point than some of the other movies. It's a good trilogy in the sense that it's, you know, loosely connected, unlike something like Saw. <laughs> yeah right it's 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 not quite like the saw movies um but uh but any any fan of the saw movies i think will find a lot to like in, in lucio fulci's work <laughs> all right we're gonna take a quick break we're gonna be right back looking at lucio fulci's 1990 movie a cat in the brain i swear i swear to god though he pulls off a trick in the first 10 minutes that you would never you you would never in a million years why would i why why would i never believe it in a million years you don't think i could get what and why i'm too stupid i'm too stupid to understand what it would be Uh, he's wearing a pair of like nba like Uh (laughs) warm-ups uh-huh he says alakazam he rips them off and instead of legs he's got two blue e-cigarettes oh Bennett, I need your opinion on this Fulci quote from 1982. So he's doing a magazine interview, and they were discussing the effects of horror on audiences. And he was saying he thinks horror is harmless because audiences cheer when the people defeat the zombies, and not the other way around. Then he said this, The audience is against evil, basically, and I think that the Clint Eastwood films are much more harmful to the youth. My films are only nightmares, after which you wake up relieved and relaxed. And fantastic films are liberating, especially for the youth, because of this role of the audience. How would you like to respond? Is Fulci less uh, harmful than Clint Eastwood? (laughs) Yeah, I, well, Fulci, like a lot of Clint Eastwood's critics, I think could benefit from maybe watching the films before he opens his fucking mouth. But, um, (laughs) no, I, uh, I think he's, he's onto something a little bit. I mean, I think, I, I think there's potentially, I mean... I, I think he's maybe like giving the answer. I think he thinks the journalists want to hear because I think we see in Cat in the Brain. I think he's pretty against the idea that any sort of content is going to inspire people to go out and do violence. But I think he's maybe onto something a little bit that like his fantastical dreamlike horror movies are a lot less uh, relatable to an audience, a lot less like potentially actionable to an audience than something like a Dirty Harry movie, which takes place in a very recognizable world and features a character who you're supposed to sort of cheer along as they do things that even they know are horrific. I think he's both right and wrong, but I, I don't know. I, again, I want to give Fulci the benefit benefit of the doubt there and, and suggest that he's just um, kind of taking the bait with that uh, that answer. So I just looked up Clint's filmography. 1980 was Bronco Billy, Any Which Way You Can. 1982 was Firefox and Honky Tonk Man. Clint is in his most affable period. <laughs> I agree. Fulci, I think open he's your eyes, man. Referring to Dirty Harry and you know stuff like Outlaw Josie Wales, but and High Plains Drifter, I assume would probably be High a Plains big Drifter, one. I think in particular, yeah. Yeah. 
It's an interesting way to think about horror, though, is is because so many people just say like, oh, you know, video games and horror films, like people will see them and then go do the things they see. But hearing Fulci say, well, no, they're cheering for the good guys is an interesting take, especially with this movie we're about to talk about. (laughs) So Cat in the Brain, we've mentioned, is a 1990 film where Fulci plays a version of himself. And I thought it was funny because everyone I personally know who had seen this movie understood the concept, thought it was just a funny and farcical thing. But then I started looking up online. It was pretty much universal hatred, or at least disdain towards it, that I could find. What is your take on this film's approach, and how do you feel its concept lands? I'm with you, Craig. Everybody I follow on Letterboxd, um, like everyone I know personally who has seen the film, likes it, gets what it's doing, would rate it like highly amongst uh, Fulci's other films. And then the general critical consensus for it is uh, that it's one of his worst, that uh, he totally missed it. And um, I love this movie. It's most obviously comparable to Wes Craven's New Nightmare, Uh, you know, a director kind of playing themselves and wrestling with uh, their body of work. Um, I just think he nails it here. I think it's it's funny, but it needs to be funny. It's gross and it needs to be gross. And um, it, it uses his kind of signature dreamlike logic in such an interesting way, having like he himself get kind of like, uh, lost in like sequences out of his films is uh, is so interesting. It makes you kind of question your own eyes. And the ending is really funny. It has an ending that anyone who has seen uh, Abbas Kiarostami's A Taste of Cherry or uh, Jerry Lewis's The Patsy will recognize. Uh, and I think it's the best version of that ending of the three. Frankly, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna first have to just clear clear that thought that that the ending is better than Taste of Cherry's ending is can't. No, I mean, I, I, I thought it was a very charming movie. It def- the ending definitely did catch me. Like, I was like, oh, it, like, of course, I was stupid enough and didn't realize what was coming. So, I, you know, I liked that. I'm glad that you, you guys talked about the quote from Fulci before, because, you know, the kind of counterpoint that people would say to him, and I think this movie is him almost wrestling with that in a, in a way, is, well, people would say, yeah, in horror movies, you're you know, kind of rooting for the people to defeat the the zombie or the monster, kind of the evil thing. But so often in horror movies, that evil thing can be coded as other people. And yeah, it can be just as violent or destructive or kind of anti-human as, you know, some of the more fat, you know, fascistic Clint Eastwood movies or whatever filmmaker you want to put in there. I think Fulci is kind of pulling back from that idea a little bit with this and and kind of saying more, but the images are me. That's what the audiences are interacting with. It's a projection of myself and kind of what I'm working through. I'm not saying these are, these are not coded messages for other people or other things or kind of, there's not a an ideology here or kind of consistent political worldview. It is me trying to f- communicate something about bodies, about um, the unknown, about in the cat and the brain, about what a legacy is to have and what it means to have it exist as something independent of you as a person. And I think as funny and as affable a movie as this is at times, it's also a lot like Wes Craven's New Nightmare and Scream 3, kind of a despairing movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Pinkerton notes in, in that art forum piece that, you know, we get these shots of Fulci like alone in this mansion by himself. There's really a sense that it's this kind of 
uh, you know, uh, solitary existence. I know in real life, you know, Fulci, he lost his wife to suicide and his daughter to like a car accident. So he was, you know, in his personal life, potentially uh, sort of a lonely guy. But I think there's there's a sense here, much like in those Craven films, that Fulci is saying like, well, this is what you want. Here it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there's 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 an anger to that. You know, I think the Dr. Uh, Egon Schwarz or whatever his name is, when he has that angry rant about like, oh, it's all about the, the stupid idea that that violence in, in horror movies inspires violence like i think fulci is is kind of bitter about two different things i think he is bitter about the idea that everyone thinks he's this like creepy you know gore guy that like you know this is really like all that's like spinning around in his head and then i think he also resents the the notion that everyone thinks that horror movies have this like deleterious social impact i think he's saying with the film like if these horror movies have an impact it's on me personally it's on like my career it's on your ability to take me seriously and maybe you know it's on my psyche potentially i do love it there's a point where he mentions i tried to do love stories but no one bought tickets so here i am making horror right because he worked in a lot of genres before making his first horror movie right i mean he had been a fairly active director for a while right i've not seen any of the three horror movie ones i think the earliest film of his i've seen might be uh lizard in a woman's skin but um, i know he had done kind of all sorts of genre stuff including comedies so of the critiques i could find online so many people just relate it to a lazy mid-series you know tv clip show the script apparently was just a a series of essentially establishing shots that allowed clips from various films under the lucio fulci presents banner to play i mean what do you think this film's greatest strengths and flaws are because it, it has some of both. <laughs> it's its greatest flaw, which for me comes all the way back around to being a strength, is how kind of repetitive it is. I think a lot of the, the criticism of it online basically boils down to like once you've seen him kind of have one of these weird fantasy nightmare dreams, uh, you've seen them all. But I would say it's greatest strength, I don't, even if it is like minor Fulci that it's interpolating or like films that he only like stamped his name on that it's interpolating. A lot of those gore effects are really incredible. Um, you know, there's a sequence when he's he's microwaving some food and starts to imagine a face getting like melted by acid. And then he turns around and is going to pour himself a drink and he drops a liquor bottle and it's suddenly replaced by like a putrefacting corpse. And like, folks, I, nobody ever rotted a corpse like Lucio Fulci. I mean, it's 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 really incredible stuff. I can't get not liking this movie. I don't know. I, I feel like I always say this when I'm on split picks. Like, if you don't like this movie, you don't like cinema. But, <laughs> folks, if you don't like Cat in the Brain, I'm not sure you like Lucio Fulci's movies. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people were looking at it as a comparison to Eight and a Half, which I don't really think is fair because that's obviously has a much that's different like intention. What he's like setting out to do, right? No. <laughs> No, this one I he's think not Alejandro funny. Gonzalez and Yuritu making Bardo here, folks. This is not like he's not setting out to make his Eight and a Half. This is, you know a state of the union of Lucio Fulci. It's like his Inland Empire or something. It's like a state of the union of his psyche. But I think more of like a troll than even that. Um, I really think, and, and this is not just me like looking for ways to talk about the movies I'm trying to write about, but I, I think of it as being a little bit like Scream 3. I mean, I really think of it as being like a movie that's about kind of like what it's like to be pigeonholed as a director. I, it, it's, it's about everybody seeing you, yeah, and thinking that you're this, you know, spooky guy. Um, and what it's like to kind of like wear those, wear that reputation. Um, yeah, as much as it's like a, a funny movie at times, it's also sort of like, a, you know, an angry and despairing one in that respect. I mean, I think I have a natural kind of inoculation to, you know, people who have the kind of knee-jerk critique of, of something like this or Bardo or Eight and a Half of like indulgent films or films that are about directors who, you know, talk about their work in different ways and not to 
put this one in the same category as the others because I think it's not self-serious in the way that Bardo probably is going to be when that comes out. But like hubris in and of itself is not a bad thing. You want a director who has a certain yeah, exactly. You want a director who has a certain amount of that's what I love. Yeah, Yeah. that's that's what I think is important about it. And it's like I would much rather have this kind of movie where you know you have someone who does have an understanding of what they believe is their kind of artistic signature, their kind of legacy, or what they understand is important to them about making movies, whether or not other people agree with that or kind of see that see them in the same light i think is sort of secondary i i just think this kind of the conceit is always very interesting to me and i i kind of like this the idea of being able to rewrite or re-express yourself in this kind of way and it feels in a way more poignant because there's a way for horror to feel much more of like an intimate thing it's a more intimate relationship when you're talking about you know, having such a visceral reaction to something. I mean, that had to be designed. It had it had to be made. And, you know, Fulci is kind of overseeing, talking about, you know, the intimacy of what it means to make the practical effect, uh, film it, and then for people to see it. You know, there's that, it's kind of a throwaway moment, but, you know, there's the scene with the eyes and, you know, saying the eyes don't look right, you know, when they're like bursting out of the person's head. And does it really have to look real? Because nothing that happens in the movies looks per se, in any of his movies, looks per se real. But does he think that it looks real? He can't possibly. Uh, So it just seems like a way for him. I mean, again, Bennett, this kind of goes back to what you were saying about his Clint Eastwood commentary that there are moments in the film where he seems to be playing to what people would expect him to be like or work like. And then there are maybe other moments that for him felt more personally kind of edifying or that he was you know working through something that was more interesting to him. There's obviously like a great tradition in literature of writers having sort of like uh, stand-ins and like exploring the biography of their stand-ins over like multiple novels this makes me wish it was more of a thing in film and maybe it is and i'm like forgetting examples but i don't know i i I wish there were more movies like this i wish there were more examples of like directors playing themselves and i wish lucio fulci had played dr fulci over like a a range of films Mm -hmm. because this is obviously him you know playing a guy late into his career Uh, i would have liked to have seen you know some young fulci like films yeah he does appear in a lot of his movies in little you know i think he has hitchcockian cameos yeah. yeah So, Frank, I think it's interesting you mentioned the, you know, the reality of the images and how believable they are. Because watching this last night, it, it made me think about, Bennett, you wrote about Georges Franchu's Blood of the Beasts from 1949, and that is a movie about touring a abattoir in uh, France. It's gross. Uh, it, <laughs> talk about realistic uh, horror, that's... A lot going on there, but um, the scene that made me think of Blood of the Beast is when he goes to lunch, and the the waiter's like, oh, would you like a steak today? And he's like, no, no steak today. Well, what about a steak tartare? And it's just the raw meat on the plate, and he's like, no, I can't do it, and he has to like run out of the restaurant. I mean, I think horror films have filled their repulsive duties when they can make you not want to eat or like have something like that and that i don't know do you see any similarities between how 
the you know the intersection of like when the images are too real versus fake like when some you see a horror image and you can't eat because of it like do you feel Fulci does that or is that something that like would come from having to think of these just continually disturbing things constantly <laughs> i think that's a wonderful sequence um his his sort of uh nightmarish daydream there and i think fulci has definitely concocted images that have like nauseated me like what few other directors have put up there i would say precisely because they seem kind of unreal um as much as like blood of the beast turns my stomach and as much as that kind of tries to create sort of an otherworldly appearance with all the fog and steam and stuff um fulci's like the crazy colors when a face is melting with acid yeah. and stuff that uh, that's like nothing else and you can see how directing that and like living in, in that world all the time you, you could believe that you would wind up like uh the, the fulci of this film for sure i mean i will say as someone who you know really does love horror movies i can't eat after watching many of them but certainly uh certainly fulci's just because if for nothing else so many of the things that happen to bodies like it's a recurring thing for people's throats to get ripped out or their tongues to get cut out or ripped out in some some form and just just that idea i mean it it seems like it's a particular concern for fulci is i'm thinking especially of the throat or, or the tongue not being able to articulate yourself in kind of that moment of horror and kind of extreme trauma that is something that is terrifying for him yeah it's kind of grotesque for everybody and i think that is also in a different way part of what the film is trying to work through from you know him looking at himself is what is it bennett as you were saying you know his personal issues you know losing his family you know that's a different kind of horror that's a you know a different kind of trauma to process but the question of how you express that or how you understand it through being able to talk about it or express it or hold on to a piece of yourself in kind of these moments of pain is, is obviously a concern. Yeah. I, um, I, I'm glad you bring up the throats getting like bitten out or tongues getting ripped out. Cause that, that for me is like, a, it's not so much a recurring nightmare as like a recurring factor of nightmares. I find anytime I'm in like a nightmare scenario, that's a big part of it is that I'm trying to talk and I can't do it. And I feel like Fulci like gets that and really taps into it. I, I'm particularly disgusted by like rot, like that that made up phobia where people can't look at um, beehives. Like I think I have it because <laughs> that <laughs> I don't know it, it, it gets me. And I, I Fulci really just makes a meal out of that sort of imagery. He can really I've, I've said it a few times. He can really melt a corpse. <laughs> Another thing I love about this movie is you know my brother and I watched it last night, and he pointed out the connection that it kind of feels like a Charlie Brown movie. I mean, you could kind of compare it to Charlie Brown Christmas or he's kind of wandering around just like, what's the meaning of horror films these days, you know? And then he's just haunted by everything he sees. How do you feel about Fulci's acting chops? Because he is the star of this movie and it's just, he's living in his own world and being just tormented by it. I, I think he does a capable job. And I think it's kind of, it fits his films that he's not very over-the-top emotional. He doesn't get, like, big monologues or anything that I remember. And we, we talked about before, like, in his films, people tend to be remarkably straight-faced as they're being, like, ripped apart. And uh, I don't know, he has this kind of, yeah, mopey, Charlie Brown-like vibe um, as he's walking through it. And we talked about, too, the despairing tone. 
Um, I like his performance. Yeah, again, you know, I wish he had led more of his films. I think more actor or more directors should do this. Yeah, I mean, I think it it has this nice kind of very understated quality. It's not really like they're not dialogue heavy or like the the story or you know dialogue. That's not what you're really watching them for. Nor should you really for any horror movie or most movies in general should you be watching them for those things. Although the movie is about him, there's a way in which, yeah, Bennett, if he had like a long monologue where he was like, you know, decrying, you know, this, this or that, there's a way that that would take away from the movies themselves and the work itself and kind of be more about him as a figure and a persona. And I think he's more, he might be interested in himself internally in himself as a figure and his relationship to this, but I... I feel like he's very careful to not give himself any big kind of grandstanding moment because he's more interested about the the imagery. So in the grand scheme of things, this movie is about the artistic struggle. And it was funny watching this last night because, you know, Bennett, we just recorded with Steve Collins, who's written a bunch about putting the artistic process on film. This is one I think he definitely needs to look at because he's just going around and Anytime he's tormented, he's trying to figure out, like, how could this be used in a film? And, like, you know, there's the part where he's just imagining the Nazi orgy. And he, like, passes out during an interview, and he's like, what happened? Um, But it does bring up the question of how do you keep finding ways to be repulsive and also preserve your sanity? Uh, Yeah, as as he shows here, not easily. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I, uh, I think the sequence with the Nazi orgy is, is incredible. And I like that, like, so much is left unseen in this movie. When he comes to, from that sequence, we find out that, like, what's really been happening has been just as nuts as that Nazi orgy. He, like, beat up a cameraman or something. I like to, uh, you know, we've we mentioned his doctor is, is killing people and hoping to frame him. When his doctor is apprehended, finally, that happens off screen. Um, we, we just learn that they've uh, they found him uh, <laughs> through, like, following Fulci. So I like that he's, like it's very much about this like personal narrative he he is kind of disinterested in a lot of like the usual plot elements and leaves those kind of off to the side in in favor of this kind of intense psychological personal narrative yeah i mean i think that's a that's a good point i had not really thought of it that way but i think it's true he does kind of he's not presenting the kind of overcoming of of evil in any serious or satisfying way and not even true in his movies that that's always what you see happen. Um, so yeah, I think it's uh, the idea of leaving things out and kind of saying out, well, forget about that. It's it's a very kind of fulci technique that we've talked about of it's a common thing for him to bring up things or characters will reference things or sometimes things will get acknowledged and they just have no bearing on the plot whatsoever because ultimately He's not terribly concerned with, you know, the plot. As Bennett said before, it's more of an image thing than it is like a plot or a, a series of sequences that kind of wrap around together. Yeah, and I think it does. You know, it just kind of messes with audience expectations. Like one of the things I read was like, well, it's not a traditional giallo because the killer's identity isn't a secret, which leaves no space for a reveal. It's like. Who cares? I kind of like that though. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that it's it it we're, the kills are sort of like the reversal of what we're used to seeing in a giallo. Instead of like seeing his hands, we're like looking at his face. It it feels like something out of like a like a regional horror movie. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It's I, 
why does that make it a bad thing that it's not a <laughs> I don't think it does folks. come on <laughs> it's a different approach you know it's like it could just be the same thing I mean I think they just wanted it to end with Fulci actually being the killer like that's the only way I can take that like oh well, I was expecting a twist who cares <laughs> I kind of <laughs> I, I, I like to, to to sort of like return to the notion that he's like a Charlie Brown like figure for a second he's so put upon like everyone here like is kind of like giving him shit constantly his doctor's assistant calls him a little shit at one point which is such a weird thing to call an adult man <laughs> not you little shit um um i, I don't know I, I it's funny too that like so the, the movie rejects one kind of pop psychology idea that like violent movies inspire violence but also uh the guy is like i can't believe you're seeing a psychiatrist like it very much supports the idea that like psychiatry is nutty which i i think is sort of uh I don't know, in keeping with the sort of weird, confused politics sort of inherent to the genre. And I, I, I don't know, we, we get a lot of sequences of his psychiatrist like, explaining things, which are always good for, for uh, exploitation movies. You always know you're in good hands when a, when a psychiatrist is sort of uh, explaining the notion of, uh, of a character's mania. I just love how his wife always has a bowl of candy in bed. That's just a great touch. <laughs> <laughs> Now, one thing, whenever Jim Hickox is on the show, he always talks about how you have to get in the film's wavelength or in the film's mindset. And I feel like this is one where if you're fighting the current, you're not going to enjoy it because you're just going to want your own things out of it. Do you feel that's fair? Oh, yeah. No, for sure. Um, like most of the movies I've covered on the show, you're in for a long sit if, uh, if, if you're not vibing with the movie after like five minutes. I think if the first fake out annoys you more than it thrills you... Oh, buddy. Uh, first of all, you need to ask yourself if you like cinema. Second of all, you might want to turn off uh, A Cat in the Brain. I think basically you know what you're in for as soon as you get the shot of the cat attacking a brain oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. in the opening couple of minutes. Um, question for you both. I mean, do you see this film being of interest to someone who doesn't have any familiarity with uh, Fulci's other work? I wouldn't think so. I think you kind of have to know who and what Fulci is to appreciate this one I mean obviously some people might just get a kick out of it like oh this is goofy but I don't know it might be a tough one to find something to latch on to if you go in cold so (laughs) yeah I would sort of agree with that I think any of his movies though can be kind of a hard sell for some people who are depending on how much they like this type of, you know, his genre of filmmaking or, you know, what we would generally call his style. You know, I think everything would could be a, a, a hard sell, uh, but in a way he feels at his most kind of relatable in this, in this sense. And I think if you almost came at it with the perspective, came at one of his other films with the perspective of, oh, well, it's not just, like he actually does think about these images. It's not just, I mean, I, I hate the this classification, but it's not just gratuitous violence or something like that. There is something that personally he's invested in. You know, maybe for, I think, those audiences who are maybe a little more off-put by violence, this could be a way to, to ease them in and kind of work backwards. I, I think all you really need to know to get something out of it, and again, this is maybe just a testament to the fact that the film is very much up my alley. It's sort of like meta bullshit. But um, I think as long as you know he's a director playing himself, uh, you sort of get the point. But um, I do think it is a film that is naturally going to be more appealing to people who are really like Fulci heads. I mean, I even feel like I don't know that I got necessarily the references or anything, or if there are specific references to like earlier films of his. 
to me it's just like you know i like hanging out with the director as themselves i like the the sort of i i like a director subjecting themselves to their own like dream logic you know it's, it's like the experience that he's given audiences of watching his films it's like putting it forcing himself not just to be a character in one of his films but to like have the experience of watching them and i feel like that's not something a lot of directors have done you know i mean wes craven i keep belaboring that but he's really the only one that comes to mind as like someone who's you know put himself as a character in his own series i mean i don't know like stephen king does it with like the dark tower books but i can't really think of another film uh series where that's the case so i think my last question for this movie is what do you think fulci is saying about the genre of horror as a whole i I think he's saying it is uh it has a lot of potential for a lot of things but i think he's saying that ultimately getting stuck in a position where that's all anyone's expecting of you and it's all that you can make of your life is ultimately pretty pretty unfulfilling and even like horrific again i think like yeah as goofy as this film is you know the poster is so off the wall and like colorful i think it's ultimately like a pretty despairing film um i think fulci is ultimately suggesting um while you know horror is potentially fodder for great art yeah, it's it's not maybe something that he's glad he's he's found his way. It's not something he's glad to be stuck in. Yeah, I think I mean there is a a kind of you know Hanukkah anti cinema approach to to some elements of Fulci there, and I think also you know one thing that I'm struck by with this film, and I to different degrees might apply to to others. I think Fulci is very, if you're going to make a movie like this about, you know, yourself and kind of your relationship to your other movies and kind of what people under the public perception of you or kind of your relationship to audiences, it does emphasize something that is important to horror cinema that I think a lot of us know, which is that horror movies are so much about the community of like fans or you know people who appreciate the genre in in different ways and you know we all have our favorites and and kind of appreciate things that other others don't about certain films or kind of those filmmakers and although the movie is itself is not really invested in the community per se other than his kind of spare interactions with with individuals in his life it is a movie that can only really be made if you feel that a bedrock understanding of you know what we're all getting into when we get into a horror movie and what we all kind of want to take out of it. And as despairing as it is in a lot of the ways that Bennett points out to, I think it it also has a kind of faith in people or kind of like a trust in other people that we're all on the same page. Basically, we're all coming at this genre or you know, writ large from different angles, but we're all like seeking the same things out of it. You know, I think maybe I wouldn't go so far as to call it despairing because I think that ending says a lot, you know, at the end of the day, like as much as he wishes he'd gotten to make other kinds of films or that he wasn't just a horror guy, horror bought him a boat, (laughs) you know, like a a boat that he calls perversion. Uh, (laughs) Such a good touch. (laughs) It's so funny. (laughs) So I just checked, according to Wikipedia, he's directed 48 films. This was 47 of 48, so essentially his second to last full film. I think there were a few others he was working on, but he got sick and couldn't complete them. From my understanding, I could be totally wrong. But this, to me, is a great late-slash-end-of-career film, because it's taking a look at your entire life's work and (laughs) wrestling with what it all means, you know? I don't know too many people who have done that convincingly. 
Yeah, and it's a perfect send off too. You know, at the end of the film, he's headed off to vacation. You know, to to compare him to Clint. You know, if if Clint goes out on cry macho, Clint goes out dancing. Uh, I, I'd like to think of Fulci as you know going out uh going out on vacation on uh on perversion, the SS perversion. <laughs> it might be good just to wrap it up with how do you feel about Fulci, his standing in the horror world as a whole? I mean, do you think he's an all timer? Is he an important figure? Where where do you feel he lands among the genre? I mean, I as someone who really did more of a speed run through Fulci since August, uh it's it's been very enjoyable to kind of become familiar with a director who is you know, in ways that we we touched about on before, so interested in this in a way that's somewhat reminiscent of other directors in, in the genre or, or, or certainly someone like Hitchcock interested in people being thrust in these kinds of situations, uh, forced to interact with characters, forced to deal with kind of events that are outside their comprehension uh, in a kind of Lovecraftian way and to not really be able to do anything about it. I think his movies, what's you know striking to me is that so often in his movies, certainly in the Gates of Hell trilogy, you just don't have the logic of a horror movie that he talks about of, you know, defeating the, the thing. It's just not, it's just not there. Uh, the question I think that he raises for some of the movies is, if you can't get that heroic moment, what else can you get out of it? Or, you know, what what kind of fruit can be born from interacting with kind of the the unknown or kind of the evil or the you know, monstrous figures? And I think from one movie to the next, that answer kind of changes and it looks different for different characters and even Fulci himself. But for all of the, you know, perverse, disgusting, spectacular elements of Fulci, I think there is an element of like a, a humanist in there and there is like an interest in what people are that people shouldn't kind of ignore or kind of you know gloss over too much yeah i think um obviously his reputation is not uh as as sterling as mario bava or dario argento um argento uh just got a full career retrospective at the film society of lincoln center and it's you know it's hard to imagine uh fulci getting the same treatment um that said um kind of yeah speed running both of their filmographies um the last couple of months um yeah fulci deserves a place in the annals of the genre for sure um he uh is is really um basically peerless when it comes to some of the imagery he's able to come up with and some of the kind of dreamlike uh atmosphere he's able to conjure up and yeah i don't think you come up with images of of terror and uh grotesquerie like he does without some interest in like the the emotions underlying the suffering you know i don't think you show the body uh experiencing such trauma without some interest in you know human suffering um some some sort of deeper uh uh interest i think he's a smarter filmmaker than he gets credit for like a lot of the filmmakers we discuss in the show i think i'd agree with that yeah i think he's worth at least knowing the basics of i haven't gone super deep yet but you know there's still a few i'd love to see but yeah he is so good at just doing out of this world images and you know like we talked about where it's just people standing around looking at these terrible things like oh this is bad like i think that's how most of us would probably react just like oh god what do i do (laughs) (laughs) my mom's face is melting what do i do now you know it's just like there's there's no there's no answer to that (laughs) you know (laughs) 
Well, Bennett, Frankie, I think we'll uh, we'll cut it there. We cover a lot of ground today, so thank you both for joining us. Bennett, do you want to tease who we'll be talking about next week's episode? Ah, yes. Um, an Italian director who doesn't get discussed even as much as Fulci. Uh, kind of the maybe forgotten uh, giallo uh, Italian genre director, Sergio Martino. We'll be joined by Jim Hickox for that one. Um, yeah, Bennett, we'll see you next week. Frankie, we'll, we'll see you soon. Happy October. Happy October.